Serenity now! Now, this is my favorite mic volume test. <laughs> and uh, to anyone who watches Seinfeld, I don't think any further explanation is needed. But if you don't, I would YouTube Serenity now, and uh, you won't regret it. But uh, yeah, I just want to mention quickly that Charlie and I decided to edit out the first 40 minutes or so. And so uh, we jump straight into referencing Jake and Michael here, which refers to Jake Orthwine, who's been on the podcast before, and meditation teacher Michael Taft, and a podcast episode that they did together recently. Just to give you some context... I also want to mention again that I've started creating Patreon-exclusive content. So if that sounds interesting to you and you also want to support the podcast, go over to patreon.com slash doexplain and check it out. All right. Enjoy this episode. All right. So I'm very excited to say I'm back on the podcast with Charlie Aubrey. Charlie, welcome. Hey, Christopher. Great to be here again. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's uh, uh, mutually exciting here, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you again. Totally, totally. I love our conversations. Me too. So I'm going to just... Um, jump right in here because i know we have a tendency to joe rogan the conversation and just go on and on and on so um, we certainly did yeah, that, was a marathon. That, that really was a marathon it was really nice but okay so jake was actually on uh, michael's wonderful podcast fairly recently did you hear yes. that episode of non-duality i haven't yet i haven't okay. yet i it's in my queue i'm so looking forward to it yeah. <laughs> okay yeah, yeah i yeah. bet you'll love it um and uh something they brought up there i'm gonna i'm gonna spoil a little bit of it perhaps for you but <laughs> oh, they uh, uh spoiler alert they uh were talking about non-duality and michael has this distinction that he makes between non-duality one and non-duality two which is oh, I love it. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's fantastic. It's so, so uh, wonderfully nerdy and technical and detailed. I love it. Um, but so, so non-duality one, and I might be butchering it completely. The way I understood it was non-duality one is like <clears throat> um, a somewhat uh, less deep recognition of the non-duality between the subject and object. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then non-duality two is the uh, somewhat deeper recognition of the non-duality between emptiness and form. Um, and I love that he's, that he's uh, breaking down different descriptions and experiences of non-duality. That's great. Mm. You know, it's because it is one of those words that can just mean different things in yes. different contexts. No, it's become a buzzword, I guess, thrown around a lot. So I, I like the precision mm. as well. Mm. And I guess the – I like to uh, see the um, the contrast between how different teachers uh, speak about these things. And for instance, mm-hmm. we've spoken about Sam Harris and his view of Dzogchen before, but I, I view him to have solid insight and understanding of the uh, experience of Rigpa. 
and he seems to make he he puts all his money on what Michael Taft would call non-duality one, at least in the in the way he talks about yeah seeing through the self and dropping out the center of experience and all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, I'd be curious how you would describe or think about. Uh, or whatever comes up when you hear this distinction that Michael is making there, any thoughts that you would have on that would be very entertaining. I think he's right. I think they're pointing to different experiences. Hmm. Do explain. <laughs> non non duality of self other is one thing. You know, mm-hmm. you can you can experience your um, your boundaries of individuation uh, dissolving. Mm-hmm. I think that happens a lot in you know, all kinds of mundane contexts. Yes, it's happening all the time, isn't it? You know, we have these very nebulous uh, uh, self other boundaries. They're they're always changing. They're always merging, uh, reforming, dissolving. So that that seems to be pointing to a very different kind of experience. And you know, there there could be a that there could be a whole range of experience within that description of self other uh, non duality from. Being in a football crowd, right, when you get yeah. like uh, completely taken away on the energy of like being in a group situation, you're, you feel like you're one with the crowd. That's a type of self-other um, dissolution, isn't it? Yeah. You feel like you're, you're – or a concert or, you know, dancing. That might be quite different to, say, a sort of revelatory, very spiritual experience, or, you know, it depends how you define spiritual, but very revelatory kind of experience of, oh, I don't have a self, I don't have a body, I don't have a, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm. Pure awareness. Yeah, you know, awareness. Yeah. You know, again, that seems like quite a different, um, quality of experience. Mm hmm. So it seems like there are, even within the description of non-duality of self and other, or say non-duality of subject-object, that's a different uh, phrase again. It seems that there are multiple experiences that we could point to that might fit in yeah. those descriptions. Yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm really curious because I have a clear reference frame for the uh, non-duality of subject-object, what that experience is mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, you've differentiated between different experiences there, but just the sense that I'm here behind my face looking out at a, a world separate from me in some regard. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I have a less, a less clear frame for what it means to experience the non-duality of emptiness and form. So... Uh, I'd mm-hmm. I'd be curious there both to hear what you think that means at the conceptual level and 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 how you would describe the experience of that would be awesome. I think that that experience is 
akin to or synonymous with Rigpa. That is the yeah. definition of, of the experience of Rigpa. Right. And so that is not really, uh, it's not, can't be confined to a conceptual understanding of nebulosity of all stuffness. Mm. I mean, that might be an aspect of the understanding that is, uh, that arises from the experience of non-duality of emptiness and form. But it, it could not be confined to that conceptual understanding. I think it's a qualitatively different experience of how things are. Mm. How so? One of the one of the descriptions that fits most with my uh, experience of how that might be is that things are not solid, separate, continuous, uh, clearly defined. Mm. And that seems to be embedded in the way of relating with whatever is going on. It just seems very naturally a rising experience. Something that comes out of Latong meditation is the sense of things, th things like experience itself being almost transparent, like kind of transparent, yeah. but, yeah. but vivid and yes. immediate and direct at the same time. It's very difficult yeah. to put these things into words, mm -hmm. but there's a sense of like bright aliveness, mm. like, um, absolute engagement and aliveness with circumstances as they come into being. Mm -hmm. And yet, at the same time, everything is moving. Mm -hmm. There's always movement, even the things that seem and appear to be so um, rigid or solid have this kind of um, vibrancy that is mm -hmm. like movement. Like this freshness, this this mm -hmm. continual emergence into into being. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Uh, but okay, so is it fair to say then uh, that from the tantric perspective, in tantra, I've come to understand that the base of tantric practice is the recognition of emptiness which in your vocabulary mm -hmm. here i take to be the same as spacious presence mm -hmm. um and zok but, but there's still effort involved there i, I remember you telling me that there's yeah. a lot of uh yeah effort and, and and drivenness there whereas once translated uh into the zokshin frame there's this effortless component of that which sounds like mm -hmm. it's more of a could you say it's less of feeling like you're actually the free-willed agent in the middle controlling things? Like there's just more of a happening going on? Or how would you bring in agency yeah. there? Yeah, well, I wouldn't so much bring in agency. I don't know. Again, that's kind <laughs> okay. of a very Western way of thinking about things. Mm. You know, we, are, we have agency and that we're acting on a world that is kind of external yeah, and, uh, you know, it's not that that is uh, 
wrong. It's just that it's a different, um, it's, it's a different way of seeing things. It's a different framework, different perspective. Right. In one way, I feel like it, it doesn't dispense of agency altogether as a concept. It just reshapes it into being more about perhaps that freedom, that spacious freedom for, Mm -hmm. uh, whatever mm-hmm. uh, to arise. And then it gives you not the classical libertarian free will uh, uh, agency that you can just outside of time and space in your little head, you can freely choose whatever you want. It's more just having more room to let things uh, arise and pass away without necessarily acting upon them. Um and just helplessly playing out things. But then at the same time, yeah. you still have... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to pick up mm-hmm. on that um, helplessness word there. I think that is uh, relevant and pertinent. Mm. There's a sense in the tantric path that, yeah, there, there are... Um, that they are effortful in the sense that yes, you're, there's a sense of direction that you're heading in a direction that you can, um, create circumstances that you can move with circumstances such that you're, um, bringing things into a particular way, a particular, particular kind of direction. Whereas, you know, I mean, that would be true of any, path or any method because you do have effort so long as there is method Mm -hmm. you have effort yep yeah so you know thinking about it in terms of the phrase that you you just used previously there there is this sense that if you're engaged with any particular method or path that is not from a fruitional perspective, that is not saying, well, actually, we're kind of already there and it's just a case of uh, realizing that, yeah. recognizing <laughs> it in the moment. Yeah. Uh, any any other path at all is going to involve some sense of, yeah, I'm heading in a direction here. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, I'm intentionally or... or uh, with with effort moving towards something, creating something, maybe in the tantric sense. Yes. And that is something that's uh, – the way I, I come to describe my own uh, – the, the changes over time in my own experience of being uh, – embodied awareness which has come to be after our episode that's come to be mm-hmm. my new way of describing what it means to be alive as a human being i just love that term wonderful yeah <laughs> i really like uh-huh. it and uh but it captures for me a very strong sense of <clears throat> not being limited to the uh let's call it the ego function or the intermittent continuing pattern that you call uh, Charlie, or that I call Christopher, which is uh, beautiful and uh, uh, a very useful thing. But that's something that can spring in and out of something deeper that I th- mm-hmm. that I refer to as embodied awareness. And it's a very particular experience to just be, mm-hmm. to just uh, be, uh, be the experience the ever-changing experience in each moment uh, 
it's a yeah it's very different especially if you come from this very heady western perspective and uh, was like i used to be at least exceptionally maybe over heady and super into philosophy and the the uh, explicit concepts and stuff like that it's just uh i become increasingly fascinated by it and something that i find somewhat paradoxical and yet just so accelerating is this sense that I'm becoming more and more transparent. I think you used the word before, but I feel like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what I feel Wonderful. myself to be is much more transparent, much more lucid, much more. Um, I, I can see very clearly the interactive component of being alive and how I spring into action as I am in response to my interaction with the environment and, for instance, my wife, which is part of uh, my most e- immediate environment most of the time, like how how I've come to express myself in terms of her behavior a lot of the time and like faces and, and, and expressions that she has has now melted into me and shaped me and vice versa. And even her mm-hmm. just ex- making a face May, has a direct causal influence on m- what comes out of my mouth next. Like it's very clear that it's an interactive affair going on, and not this Cartesian agent in the head just uh, choosing everything for oneself. And I find it exceptionally liberating, and something that opens up so much more compassion and wonder, and uh, yeah, vividness. I just, I, I, wonderful. I'm, I love it. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, Same wonderful. in this conversation. Yeah. So uh, there's something I could pick up on there that is kind of interesting in relation to Zogchen, and that is that uh, Zogchen does not um, ascribe to the same kind of uh, worldview of everything uh, fitting within the frame of dependent causality in quite the same way as uh, as does in Mahayana. And that is a point of friction. Mm. There's a point of um, contention. There's a sense that spontaneous arising happens, randomness happens, that there is, uh, that the way of things coming into being does not necessarily uh, have identifiable causation, like everything is sort of networked all together and intrinsically, inevitably linked. Spontaneity mm-hmm. is the idea, the, the concept, the possibility that that does not happen. Stuff just randomly occurs, just pops into being and pops out. Uh, so that you know that has massive implications you think of how that would affect the whole world of karma of dependent arising it was basically saying well yeah you know stuff can just pop into (laughs) existence spontaneously occur bloop de doop de doop like that (laughs) (laughs) but yeah but okay, that's interesting. Is that but is that meant to be a metaphysical claim or an experiential claim? Yeah, I think it. I think it actually is metaphysical. Mm. Although for the most part, Zogchen isn't a metaphysical claim. It's not 
saying things, uh, is not building a whole great big worldview. But I think there is that implicit um, understanding there. It's bringing a different understanding of how things are, how the world is, how things come into being. I'm always hesitant myself when it comes to metaphysical claims because I find that mm-hmm. most of the time, if it's um, if it's mainly a project of uh, liberation and freedom from suffering and, and and more freedom to choose, as it were, uh, I feel like you can often make do with just the experience and the experiential claim and pointers. But I'd be curious mm-hmm. to see what what role this differing view, this differing metaphysical claim makes in Dzogchen in terms of, yeah, eth- ethics and, and behavior. What implications does it have for well, that? Well, that, that is the claim that spontaneous awareness is just available to anyone, anywhere, at any point. I mean, if, if awareness was dependent on you having worked through a whole series of preliminaries <laughs> and, you know, everything that is brought back into Zogchen later, you know, you go through the system, you, you, you can't get the pointing out instructions until you've been through this and then that, and the, <laughs> right. you know, the, the preliminary preliminaries and then the second preliminaries and then the, you know, so that claim that awareness is spontaneously available to anybody, it's a claim about experience. It's saying, yeah, that, that can happen to anybody at any point. All you've got to do is relax. So yeah. <laughs> that, right. that is a very contentious claim. It really yeah. puts, puts a spanner <laughs> in the works. It, it really is saying, uh, yeah, no, you do not have to go through this long progressive path. Yeah, yeah. And that, that tension is there. That tension is held throughout the history of, of Dzogchen and its relationship with the rest of Vajrayana, with the rest of Buddhism. And it gets reworked and re, uh, resynthesized and re, and brought into the framework of, ah, oh, yeah, well, actually, no, yeah, maybe that's available at some point, but first of all, you have to go through all of the preliminaries. So it gets pulled back into that systematized framework later in its mm-hmm. development. But the fundamental uh, basic claim of Zogchen is that uh, spontaneity is immediately available. Right. Spontaneity of awareness is immediately available. It does not rely on... Uh, previous identifiable causes but doesn't the because i mean all of that i i effing hate the idea of you have to go all through the through all these steps and you have to like i don't even formally sit because i have such a anti-method anti-authoritarian perspective uh going on and so so i resonate with all of that i'm just not sure i see why the idea of uh, spontaneous recognition and not having to go through mm. a, a, a go through the ringer and mm. have this stringent stepwise path. Mm. Why can't that be compatible with it's all interconnected into this causal network? I don't see why the spontaneity can't be part of the causal interdependence. 
how say more about how spontaneity would uh, would relate to causality in your view spontaneity to me we're talking about an experience right because yes i think there's yeah. also the framework there i think there there is this different holding framework something can arise from nothing is very different to yes. saying something arises through the um emptiness of oh, yeah. phenomena that have pre pre-existed so that's where yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. emptiness yeah. word gets very slippery because right. emptiness could be like basic spacious nothingness and stuff pops into being and pops away goes mm -hmm. away which is quite different to saying it is uh something comes into being reliant on previous form because of the empty nature of that form. Mm, okay, well, then I would phrase it uh, that I think the experience can be the same. Like, you can conceptualize it in different ways, but I don't see why the experience uh would necessarily mm -hmm. be different mm -hmm. like what would prohibit like yeah. if, if everything is causally determined you might still experience it like spontaneity if there's no clinging involved i think it's that's the way i would view it right but there might be a big argument from the perspective of institutionalized uh spirituality yeah. and social um order mm -hmm. that it would be uh better to go through a particular um, sequence of practice in order to get to the point where spontaneity can occur. Mm. I mean, you know, it's quite actually quite anarchic and quite radical to say, well, you know, you could be some kind of uh, inconsequential yogi wandering in the mountains and mm have direct access to rigby <laughs> yeah. outside yeah. outside of our socially ordered system yeah I mean, you could be a, a ordinary very ordinary villager going about your uh, business and you could simply uh, experience rigba you don't have to go through this uh, yep. entire edifice and uh, institutionalized construction that we have here in order to get there you know that's that's kind of obnoxious it's quite uh <laughs> which is why i love it it is yeah yeah you know it is um, <laughs> conf confronting a social order as well i think it's important to remember that zogchen was doing that mm. it really was controversial yeah i i mean and the kind of things that uh, sorry carry on no, I was going to say, I under I can understand if someone's gone through the drudgery of 20 years of sitting on a cushion and just being in pain and, and uh, neglecting all the worldly <laughs> pleasures. Yeah. And then just yeah, me yeah. as some fucking software, hedonistic software programmer just saying, I don't formally <laughs> meditate. I, I recognize Rikpa. Yeah, yeah it's going to be really annoying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But okay, but but let's go there then, because it seems like you're pointing pointing towards pun intended uh, the the uh, rigidity perhaps of the pointing out instructions. Oh, interesting. So I listened to your podcast with um, Ollie Edholm. And, yes, uh, Edholm really enjoyed that. I thought it was fantastic. I loved mm. his uh, his 
really precise, great description of the yanas and uh, yeah. yeah. So I remember you you were talking about pointing out instructions with him yeah. during that uh, recording. Yeah, yeah, interesting because that does relate to what we're uh, what we're grappling with here. I think. Yeah. There's pointing out. You know, maybe it's helpful to say something a little bit about pointing out the context of pointing out instructions because they they have changed i think over the over the centuries the way that they're understood and the the understanding of their function as well is um it's kind of interesting mm. yep they're, please lecture me <laughs> <laughs> I'd so, love to hear. Uh, uh, so let's see let's see uh Direct introduction, direct introduction and pointing out. There are these phrases that come into Zogchen, they come into Mahamudra. Uh, so they're phrases that uh, evolved during the uh, the development of a fruitional perspective. And the direct introduction, pointing out, they're kind of synonymous. They're translations of this um, the same term in Tibetan. So it's literally like, Handing over the essence, handing over the essence of something, handing over. Uh, actually, the word is in Tibetan. The the syllable is face, the face, which is kind of interesting itself. Mm. So, it's like direct introduction to the nature of mind or the nature of awareness. Mm-hmm. So you have. Pointing out instruction in Zogchen, it comes into Mahamudra from Zogchen. It's kind of rebranded in Mahamudra. And the idea is that the Lama, the teacher, points out the natural state in such a way that the uh, the student, the disciple, is able to see that, to recognize it. That is to have an experience of Rigpa in that moment through the skill of the teacher's indication. Yeah. So if you think about that, you think about this in the context of um, of that spontaneous liberation that we were talking about in Vajrayana, in Zogchen, and in the essence Mahamudra lineages as well. You can see why this becomes necessary, right? They have a social, political agenda there. There's a necessity to somehow prove authenticity to the more institutionalized, more traditional spread of Vajrayana that's coming in from India. You, you you know, there's this tension that I was talking about. There's a need to prove this authenticity. You have lineage, you have a historical line of knowledge transmission. Right. You know, that happens in any domain of knowledge, any craft, any physical sport or art or any intellectual uh, lineage and you know in scientific understanding it happens as well you describe and authenticate your understanding in terms of lineage and knowledge transmission so what do you do if you're saying like the early Zogchen lineages where they were saying well actually spontaneous awareness is available to anyone anywhere it's always already here how do you authenticate that understanding how do you prove that so, you know, it seems to me that this idea of direct introduction follows very naturally from that situation. 
the history of Menagde, the later development in Zogchen, is that it's systematizing itself. It's proving itself through integration and systematization with Tantra, which is spreading, it's gaining power, popularity. So it's almost like the pointing out there, the, the, uh, the nature of direct introduction, it's like a perfect solution. You create an authentic lineage of transmission of the natural state, the state of presence of awareness, and you maintain your doctrine that spontaneous awareness is both possible and immediately always available against this idea that you have to work for it over lifetimes progressively, that it's this kind of big effortful thing, that effortful, you know, uh, um, systematized approach that you have to go through. You have to go through all the hoops, jump through the hoops. So you're maintaining your core distinction that you don't have to do that. And at the same time, you have an authentic historical lineage of transmission from one generation to another. Mm-hmm. And in theory, instead of that happening through information transfer, passing on knowledge, you have it through passing on experience, through pointing out instruction. So you have this kind of dual thing going on. You have a mechanism for ascertaining whether or not a student has arrived at a place of understanding. You know, the master, the student can say, oh, no, that didn't work. I didn't get it. Um, go back and do some more practice. You're not there yet, whatever. But you're maintaining the doctrine or the worldview that says that spontaneous presence is possible. Mm-hmm. You're bringing that into the context of uh, learning and practice. And in particular, you're bringing that into a monastic, institutionalized setting, it seems to me. So, you know, this is now that I'm I'm riffing on this topic. It it seems to make it important that the nature of pointing out instruction is that it isn't generically generally replicable. You can't just copy and paste it. That's kind of dialed in to um, what pointing out is. It's the nature of the thing. It's important for its function socially as lineage transmission as well as spiritually that it is occurring between individuals. And I think historically that that would have been between wholly special individuals, individuals <laughs> with social and institutional responsibility. <laughs> right. If it were, you know, if it were actually easily replicable, then that would mess the whole thing up because it's acting as a kind of, it, it's actually making spontaneity a locus of social power, isn't it? Mm. So it's it's bringing back, uh, it's moving against that decentralization of power. It's making direct awareness available. The the, the decentralization made direct awareness uh, supposedly available to anyone and everyone. And then the, the introduction of direct introduction of pointing out is securing lineage. It's securing power. It's bringing everything back into the order, into the fold of, of social order again. Mm. So I think the, you know, the way that I'm talking about it, it's, it's making it sound entirely like a social convention 
And I think we certainly do have a social convention here for sure. But there's also this, um, there's a very interesting side to it that I think the social form, like also social forms at last, it contained something quite real, quite extraordinary. You know, so maybe I could say a little about the experience of direct introduction. Please the, the experience do. of that, that mode of transmission, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we, re- we, we have pointing out instructions now, this, this whole mode of transmission. And I think that the way that it is now grew out of, um, a very particular kind of experience. And the, the way that it is, is it feels extraordinary. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's the nature of the thing. It feels like there is this extraordinary shift in experience over a moment. Something changes, like palpably something changes. Mm-hmm. You could say that uh, the pointing out occurs the moment there is that shift. The change in experience itself could define that there's been an introduction. You could look at it that way around. Something changes. It might be a moment of uh, of personal insight or a deeply felt understanding or there's some kind of shift in atmosphere. And so traditionally, the pointing out instruction was... It was just simply an introduction to the state of Rigpa. Nothing except that. In Zogchen, at yep. least. In Mahamudra, it becomes a bit more, um, it, it gets fitted into that, um, that more gradual, um, realization. But traditionally, that understanding and the phrase used would be that the nature of mind is transmitted. So it's a mind to mind or a sort of awareness from the awareness of the Lama to the w- awareness of the student. It's like this kind of unbroken mind stream between Lama and student. Mm. And the student experiences a change in their own way of being, their own perception, their embodied experience of yeah. how things are in the moment, the felt sense in the moment. Now, interestingly, it, it feels like, it can feel like something magic <laughs> in both in both senses of the word. Like, I don't have a magical worldview. I don't think that supernatural entities or human beings, for that matter, can, can use their minds to influence physical material events <laughs> okay. at a gross level, at a gross level. Well, I surely but, do. You do, do you? No, <laughs> no I don't. <laughs> oh, no. no. Sorry. No. Sorry. I'm very gullible, you know. I'm very gullible. Right? <laughs> okay. I'm just lying to your face. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, yeah, I think, I think that moment of interaction between a giver and a receiver, it's a transmission in that sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be like a small move. It could be a gesture or it could be something that a teacher said or just even a, like, a facial expression or, or a look. There's just something that changes the experience of how things are. So the mostly the nature of pointing out instruction is that it occurs in this heightened, intensified environment, an environment of, uh, of 
heightened awareness. And for that to be the case, usually it would only be two people or a small handful of people. It it has to be this context that is vibrant with potential, like circumstances that have been um, created by a group of people coming together. Uh, You know, there's something happens that is palpably different there. So it's a felt sense, and it's also a mental shift as well. It's like a, a parallel would be that um, that that kind of move that occurs when you have an experience of concept-free awareness. Mm-hmm. This is an analogy, like the first moment when you have that, your your experience totally clears, your awareness clears. There's that shift, that change in experience. It's almost like a kind of binary shift over a moment. Yeah. So we talked about that before, I think. That that is the senses that something happens almost instantaneously. You have people would describe it like a veil lifting. Mm. You're suddenly in this very different experience of the world. And it seems it seems to me that the same kind of perceptual move happens with direct introduction. It's unexpected. It's like this aha moment, like, whoa, what just happened? Everything's suddenly different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, what, what has happened to pointing out instruction? What has happened? It seems to me that some teachers now have attempted to replicate that, uh, that moment in large crowd situations or on a retreat, say, where you've got 20 people, 30 people, 100 participants, you know, a large gathering, and they'll have pointing out instructions as a matter of ritual, mm-hmm. as a formal transmission. Now, if you have a worldview that what's happening with direct introduction is uh, – very magical, like it's some kind of psychic transmission, then it makes total sense that a lama, a big holy person, would be able to physically, psychically, whatever, transmit Mm -hmm. to any number of people at the same time. So there's a kind of um, logical coherence there. But it seems to me that the context and nature of the thing has changed over the centuries and it's become much more like a like a reenactment of an idea, more like that than an extraordinary but entirely plausible uh, interaction or communication that occurs uh, very spontaneously in a small group setting between two or just a very small group of people. Because mm. you know how, like, when you're in in a situation where there's just a few people, the interaction itself can give rise to something really unique really extraordinary yeah and the more and more and more people that you add the less plausible that becomes so it's not to say that something extraordinary couldn't happen mm-hmm. in a larger group if you have a particular kind of atmosphere or or people are there with certain expectations and then there's some kind of ritual there's an openness for sure, I think that could lead to extraordinary experience. I think it's much harder to, ex- to to orchestrate that kind of communication in a larger group 
setting. It's not that it couldn't work. It's just much, much less likely. You haven't established a personal relationship. You know, that seems key to me to, uh, to the nature of direct introduction, this personal relationship. Are you priming me for the the pointing out that you're the <laughs> Not at all. giving me personal Not at all. I think okay. I've just been going off. <laughs> no, but no, yeah. it's very it's very fascinating, and I've always felt like, <clears throat> well, I haven't always, but I, I feel right now like there's a tension in my mind between the the liberating and democratizing idea of. Uh, mm. Yeah, liberation, spontaneous liberation is always available, mm. and you you mm. you don't have to go through this laborious path to become a Buddha mm. because you're already a Buddha. You just need to recognize it, and mm. attention between that, uh, which I find to be a very helpful perspective a lot of the time, and the idea that but you still have to. You, yeah. you still have to go through all these, yeah, preliminaries and right. rituals, and then maybe I have to go to Tibet to see some some uh, master, and now it's COVID for two years, I can't travel anywhere, right. and so I feel stressed yeah. and I feel friction, and uh, so I, I'm not sure, I'm not quite sure what to do with that, and 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 yet I can still good. see good, 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 good. <laughs> that that's I'm so happy to hear you saying that because I think that is how it is. There is this tension and thousands of, of years have been, you know, people, scholars, uh, practitioners have been grappling with that tension mm. for centuries. And that is how it is. And again and again and again, uh, people try to smooth out that tension and try to make it all um, um, entirely compatible. And they're not. They're not compatible worldviews. They're mm. not compatible experiences, even. Until you get to being able to hold those two different approaches together and say, yeah, okay, I, I can understand that there are these two incompatible um, ways of seeing things, approaches, um, mm -hmm. uh, experiences that are possible. And yeah. You know, either it's spontaneous or it isn't, right? Either either awareness right. is instantaneously available or it isn't. And if it is, fantastic. And if it isn't, yeah, you've got some work to do. But trying to make them part of exactly the same experiences, I just don't think it's going to work. So how do you approach that as a teacher of these things? Well, how would you approach it as a practitioner i mean the 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 one thing i would say in favor of not just frivolously uh giving the pointing out instructions is i can understand that you want to and this is a point that sam harris often makes that you, the profundity of what's being taught might be overlooked or missed if you are not primed and have the prerequisite attention to be able to follow along. And so there's always a risk there of a so what kind of attitude. <laughs> and so introducing yeah. it at the right time might be, might be vital in that sense. But um, how I would approach it... Uh, I don't know if I have a good answer to that. 
mm. I would feel it out in my uh, my relationship with the particular person, uh, uh-huh. perhaps. Sounds like a, a good way to go about things. <laughs> but, but but I'm more interested in how you actually approach it as a meditation teacher, um, and where you stand on, on on this friction in general. Yeah, I don't I don't think about it in terms of this formal structure. So I don't think about it in terms of oh, uh, hit. Let's prime a person so that in future, uh, you know, let me do something that will prime somebody such that uh, eventually something will be available. Oh, here's a seed. Here's a magic seed that then uh, you can take and do so. I don't, just don't think about it in those terms. And I think that's why I would uh, like the, the phrase direct introduction speaks more to me than mm-hmm. pointing out instruction, even though those are the same thing in, in Tibetan. The translation direct introduction is much more about this interactive experience that arises in context that is not prescribed. It's not, uh, um, ritualized. Whereas the pointing out phrase seems to point more to something that is kind of brought into a system that is ritualized, that is made like, okay, first we do this, then we do this, then we do that, Mm. then you get to the pointing out, and then the Lama points out the thing, and then whether you know it or not, you have this nice uh, magic seed that can blossom into realization and then all you've got to do is a lot of work and then that will happen (laughs) whereas this you know that's very different there's a very different way of thinking about it of going about the whole thing right Mm -hmm. direct introduction as um, a spontaneously arising experience between people again it's it's pulling at that tension, isn't it? It's pulling at that, oh, here is a set way of things to do it. And it's saying, well, actually, no, we can't predict how it's going to occur. We can't predict exactly what it's going to be like. I don't think necessarily that uh, a teacher or a mentor or a guide and a student or a, uh, a meditator can say, exactly how it's going to be in a particular circumstance when you're meeting and um, conversing and talking about practice or about life. You know, something sometimes occurs, Mm -hmm. something sometimes occurs in communication and it's different every single time. Yeah, God, you're so nuanced, Charlie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah i don't know what you do there's something that you do that sometimes suddenly sends me off into a a kind of riff on a topic and i just go on and on (laughs) no i i loved it i appreciate it a lot thank you for sharing that oh you're welcome yeah all right charlie so i would like to um 
go into your wonderful project evolving ground a bit and give you some space to tell us what's what's going on there oh, cool. and what's alive for you guys wonderful yeah it, it's so alive for me at the moment I, am, <laughs> uh, I, I, I just love how how everything is evolving there uh, <laughs> nice <laughs> yeah uh, we have a retreat coming up in the summer that I'm really excited about. It's our first community-wide uh, residential retreat. So we have had residential retreats already, uh, but we're we're opening out so that this is going to be a little bit larger. It's available to everyone in the community. Mm. First week of August, we're going to be. Uh, Putting, we've got a schedule together. We'll be having opening awareness meditation, a little mm. bit of relational tantra. We've got different, uh, yeah, different uh, opening breath, different physical practices. Mm. Uh, a lot of long day. I've been thinking a lot about uh, Zogchen long day uh, physical movement practice recently as well. So we're going to incorporate some of that mm. into the retreat. Really looking forward to it. Nice. I, I just want to flag that that's uh, my birthday. Is that week? So is there oh. a coincidence there? Is that a is there a connection? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder if you could. Actually, uh, <laughs> we're we're going to be up in the mountains. What a way to celebrate your birthday it would be. I mean, honestly, yeah. I honestly I don't think I could think of a, a single way I'd rather celebrate my birthday. But uh, oh, beautiful. It's, uh, beautiful. <laughs> no, that sounds amazing. Okay, but but uh, a longer retreat. How long are we talking? What have you done before? Altogether, it's altogether it's a full week. So the longest that we've had so far is a five day residential retreat. And we have an annual gathering, uh, in person gathering over a weekend that is very informal, much more casual. So mm. this retreat is going to be longer. It'll be in two parts. So the earlier part for three three full days is the community wide, and then we'll go into a little bit more of. Uh, core community apprentices pupils vajra mm. retreat after that yeah and how is it structured can you tell us something more about like do you have any uh, uh theoretical lectures do you pair that with the experiential stuff or, or what does it look like yeah, a bit of a, a mixture. So we'll, uh, most of my courses and, uh, most of what we do involving around, we have that mixture of framework and bringing the principles and looking at how practices function within a particular kind of worldview, non-renunciative, mm -hmm. life-affirming worldview. So we have that kind of framework and then we look at practices inside that framework. So we'll introduce, for example, if we introduce opening awareness, we then We'll be relating that to, well, how does this actually work in your relationships? How does it work in relation to emotional responsiveness? Mm. Uh, how do you, how do you bring your practices into everyday experience? So we'll have a section of the retreat that is called approaching contemporary tantra. And we'll be having practices in that that you can then take into your formal sitting or take into your everyday practice uh, have a life affirming path section we have a mm -hmm. processing session at the end of the day mm. particular kind of topic exploration so yeah it's not going to be a silent retreat uh, an only meditation retreat like you would have maybe in a right. more of what i would call a sutric style yeah. like, you know we're not doing 
um, 10 hours, 16 hours of intense meditation every day. But we all have silence overnight. And then an aspect of the retreat is relation. So mm. relating, relating with each other. Very different. Vajrayana retreat is a really quite a different thing, especially a group Vajrayana retreat is, is a different thing to yeah. uh, a, a sort of hardcore meditation retreat. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it resonates much more with me personally. And I've always been, mm-hmm. I've always been flabbergasted with like, why do you need to pair the practice always, uh, let's take Vipassana meditation and the classic structure of those retreats. And I've been to one mm-hmm. and like, I, I'm super curious and I want to learn and I want to investigate these things. And also I don't want to only eat vegan food and I don't want to not eat anything after noon and be starving all day and, and night. And I don't want to get up at 4 a.m. And it's just, I, I've never understood. And sleep in an uncomfortable bunk with like four other people that I couldn't talk to beforehand. Like, it's just, uh-huh. I don't see why you can't combine uh, things that I would consider nice, like some, some comfort and luxury with these, uh, these practices. And, uh, yeah, from what I heard there, it just sounds so much more fun to go on a retreat like that. Uh, it's yeah. it's a lot of fun. Like, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of play. There's a lot of creativity. The retreat that we had in January, which was uh, a kind of trial run, we were on that retreat, we created a group sock feast ritual together. And that was just very, very moving. Mm. Uh, it, it was a beautiful experience. And a number of people engaged in that day-to-day um, session that we had that was bringing this um, sock into being would have described themselves as you know, previously not particularly interested in ritual at all, not at all. And yet every single person mm. said how moving the eventually this uh, this ritual experience that we brought into being this more formal experience was so that that was a lot of fun as well Mm. you know we incorporated the outside like going out into the mountains it was snow at the time so it was just lovely it was really really lovely so very different nature to the idea of of retreat yeah very different uh, kind of retreat than than would be fitting in a renunciative yes, uh, environment, renunciative setting, you know. It's if you are renouncing craving, renouncing yeah. desire, uh, renouncing uh, emotion, renouncing pleasure yeah. for sure, then you're going to be engaging with a very different kind of structure, a different uh, training. Yeah. You're training yourself in a different way. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, the the word that pops up to me is is celebratory of life rather than renunciative. Yes. That's the sense. That of seems it. really fitting. Yeah, very fitting. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so we had a fire ceremony at the end of that last retreat as well. And uh, mm. uh, you, you grill one of the really, one of the participants <laughs> on we an open not, fire. We didn't need to. We didn't need to. The food was amazing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 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 well, sorry, but yeah, so what did that consist of? I'm curious. Uh, the fire ceremony? Yeah, what just, is that? That uh, sounds cool. There's, so traditionally in, in Buddhist Tantra, there's a fire puja, and you would have, uh, you know, it depends on your lineage how you would go about that, but you would have a, a bit of a ritual uh, gathering, and it's a, like a kind of purification ceremony. So you know, we we did a very short uh, gathering around a fire and uh, yeah you know mm. had I won't go into loads of details yeah, about yeah. about what we actually did but it, you know it was a, a a very beautiful way to end a retreat yeah and a social element to it as well just mm-hmm. you know everybody getting together and uh, enjoying each other's company. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm really uh, I'm currently saving for a very expensive uh, apartment. Uh, the down payment oh. is exceptionally high here in Sweden, so oh. we're we're oh. pinching any uh, every penny here. But I, I'm already noticing that it's going to be non-negotiable for me to, at some point in time, mm-hmm. uh, participate in one of these evolving ground retreats. Oh yes, so, please. Uh, <laughs> love to it would, have uh, you. yeah, it would be lovely to meet in person as well. Yeah, yeah. I have this idea that uh, that we could have European uh, visit next year. Mm. I think it would be really great to come to Europe and have uh, maybe set up some kind of gathering or have a retreat Ooh. in Europe next year. Oh, that'd be amazing! Yeah. Do you have any sense of where? It'd be great. Where in Europe you're? Uh, well, we have uh, we have apprentices in Germany and in Poland at the moment. We have uh, long term community uh, people who've been involved in the community in Britain, in the UK. So various various options, I think. Mm. That's wonderful. Yeah, you you got to keep me updated on that. I'm. Uh... I'm eagerly looking forward yeah. to that. Yeah, that'd be amazing. And uh, yeah. yeah, Charlie, just like last time, I've had a, a, a enthralling and wonderful conversation here with you. And uh, last time, we I put you on the spot in the beginning with a guided meditation. Oh, you did, there. yeah. yeah. And you so, I, I, you know, I want to say uh, just uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, yeah, I want yeah, to sure. Appreciate you doing that because I never had done guided meditations before that Mm. particularly you know maybe one or two here or there but it wasn't a thing and after that i started introducing some guided meditations into uh into evolving ground and into my courses as well so uh, (laughs) those have gone down really well yes people love them so okay great thank you christopher (laughs) well we have this uh yeah, we have this life-affirming path uh, um, gathering in Evolving Ground once a month, and we've been doing some guided meditations in those, and it's just been delightful, lovely. And that's because of you. So yes. I appreciate I mean, it. <laughs> oh, that's nice to hear. And I mean, what I hear you say implicitly there is that I have, I have uh, a claim on some of the prophets, right? That's what you're getting at. <laughs> Profit. Yeah. Profit. I can't wait. Yeah. No, that's great. That's Bring awesome. it on. <laughs> but, um, 
No, but so 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 what I wanted to do here, and feel free to decline, but when I started the vast sky mind with Michael, he actually mentioned something about the pointing out thing, and mm-hmm. uh, he did a short uh, uh, guided meditation pointing out like the 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 inherent nature of mind just to give us a, a little taste of what was attainable uh before we got into the course and i was wondering if you'd feel comfortable or able to give us some kind of pointing out uh short five minute thing here to end it oh end the conversation <laughs> no pressure oh my word. <laughs> uh. There you go. <laughs> give us, give us the goods. No, but I, I know that I, I said to, um, I said to Oliver uh, in the end of our episode oh, yeah. that, yeah, because he's he's received pointing out instructions, and I've always yeah, been, right, I, I've right. always been so bugged with the secrecy and the fact that. Sam Harris, for instance, he talks in his book, Waking Up, about how oh, it's the most important thing I've ever learned, blah, blah, blah. And then they, they leave you hanging. So I've always been annoyed with that. All right. And uh, yeah, don't leave me hanging, mate. <sighs> <laughs> Wake up for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Do you work at all with pointing out instructions in Evolving Ground? Oh, not formally, no. Nothing like that. okay. Yeah, no. How come? No. Well, because of exactly what I was uh, describing earlier, you know, there is the sense that if something were to occur um, that that is kind of instantaneously liberating or transformative, you know, something... Mm -hmm. um, in an interaction, then it would not, it w- it wouldn't be uh, prescribed. Mm-hmm. It would be spontaneous. The nature of that interaction would just kind of occur. It would happen mm-hmm. out of the context. So, um, you know, there is this different approach to pointing out that is uh, building it into a more uh, formalized uh communication mm-hmm. so that's one way of doing it and then you know there's this other way that would be it just arises it it arises out of um the experience of the relationship mm. i mean so, something that seems very uh logical to me is the idea that if it's true that what we're talking about in Dzogchen is just the nature of your mind. It's already the way your mind is. It's just that you're overlooking it or failing to see it. It makes sense to me that mm-hmm. even with an uninitiated, uh, untrained mm-hmm. non-meditator, you should be mm-hmm. able to uh, point to it in some way, shape, or form Um that, that that would be possible. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. so what I would put to you as a second suggestion, instead of being an asshole and, and, and asking you to uh, enlighten us all, um, w- what would be, for someone who might not have mm-hmm. any reference point for what we're talking about here, emptiness, rig power, or any of this spacious freedom, what would be some experiential pointer you could give just to get... I would say, yeah, I would say... 
find people, find peers, find a mentor or a teacher, or find people whose experience you come to know and trust and to feel that you can learn from Mm -hmm. and develop a relationship with them. Mm. And then through that relationship, that is, you know, this isn't only true in, uh, in meditation or it isn't only true in Dzogchen. It's true in any learning, any, uh, any lineage of, uh, experiential practical learning. Mm-hmm. You're going to be, uh, learning through the relationship with people who have, uh, who have some experience in that domain. Mm. So this is a different approach in Vajrayana. You learn through relationship very much so. You're yeah. not uh, learning in isolation. I like you, that. You're bringing your experience and, and learning through that relationship yeah. and through all of your relationships as well. You see that uh, that possibility reflected in any any relationship. Yeah. Well, Charlie, I want to thank you for for those words and the entire conversation. I had a blast again, and and I <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> it has, <laughs> and uh, I want to also give you a compliment and say that I find you an exceptionally uh, inspiring and clear uh, speaker and portrayer of these ideas. And it's um, I love connecting with you, mate. It's it's um, it's a thank you so much. It's a blessing. Thank you. Yeah. It, it's been a blast. I I love connecting with you too, and thank you to everybody who's who's still listening at this point. Really appreciate <laughs> yeah. your your engagement. Yeah, yeah. So let's end on where can people find you and Evolving Ground, and yeah, learn more about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, evolvingground.org, Two G's in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, my site is Vajrayana Now. Uh, you can check out my courses there as well. I'm really into my courses at the moment. I'm loving putting those together. I've got one coming up on relationship. Mm. Plug for my relationship. Vajrayana and relationship course is going to be running on Sundays in July. So Vajrayana Now is where I write and uh, I'll put some stuff up about courses there. Evolving Ground is the community mm-hmm. that we're, it's contemporary Vajrayana community. Um, that's the retreat that we were talking about earlier. Uh, we can maybe drop some links in the uh, yes. episode uh, page as well. Yeah, that'd be great. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Raleigh, and I, I wish you a nice day. And I'm going to have a nice night. Yeah, sleep well, Chris.